God, those communists are amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Leftist Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I'm here with Jaron, he, him. And our guest tonight is Rick, he, him. How's it going, Rick? Good. <laughs> so why don't you introduce yourself and your podcast to our listeners? Yes, I'm, my name is Rick. I am a member of the Comanche Nation. I'm a host of Decolonize Buffalo. I have an Indigenous Peoples Law degree from the University of Oklahoma. And yeah, this is the topic that I'm most famous for. <laughs> and that's so, the topic yeah. tonight is Chicano nationalism. Yeah, Chicano nationalism or, you know, uh, observing or like critiquing Chicano nationalism via indigenous lens. Yeah, Marxist lens too. Yeah, I mean, you sent me some articles. It's really interesting. It's a whole other aspect of the stuff that I've never, you know, I just mm-hmm. am not familiar with. And so it's definitely tied in with the Marxist struggle, the decolonial struggle. So yeah. you have a great outline that you gave us. Yeah, I mean, take it away if you want to start with the history of it. Yeah. So I think, you know, in order to talk about Chicano nationalism, we have to talk about Mexican nationalism. So what's the history of Mexican nationalism? It doesn't start at 1910 or 1810 or, you know, whenever Mexico was founded. I think it goes back to the beginning of Spanish colonization when there was a racial caste system. In this caste system, you know, the Spanish were on top, obviously, because, you know, they're colonizers, indigenous, and Asians and black people uh, were like on lower classes from you know, the Spanish. But there was up to, I think it was anywhere between 20 or 40 different caste systems. So when there was a different Jesus. mix, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when there was a mix of people like this Asian or black or black and indigenous or, you know, black and white, there were so many different mixes. And then there were submixes of these castes. Um, yeah, I mean, when, before we started recording, you told me that right away when the colonizers got there, they started importing people not only from Africa, but also from the Philippines, which I had no idea about. Yeah, from Southeast Asia, too. So there was like, you know, Asian people coming. I mean, I'm not saying that the Filipinos are Asian because this is a whole different conversation, you know. But there was so much, I mean, there was colonization. People, they were brought in for yeah. labor. Uh, but I, I do want to step back a little bit, too. And we have to talk about, I guess, like the the ethnicity origins of Spain, because when the Spanish came in in 1491, it was like the same year they finally won against the Moors in Spain, right? So it was 800 years of Reconquista. So, you know, the Arabs were in control of Spain for 800 years, and they actually made Spain pretty prosperous, you know, with agriculture and infrastructure. So, you know, there was Arabs, there were Romani people, there was uh, African people in Spain, like the Berbers, you know, those right next door, uh, North Africa. And some of those people stayed in Spain if they converted to be Catholic. But obviously, you know, if the whiter you are, the better you are in, in that aspect, yeah. you know, back in the day. But still, so not all Spanish people were of white descent. Uh, we have to be really clear about that because I, I always explain to my podcast, I was in the army. And when I was in Afghanistan working with NATO, I worked with the Spanish. And some of those dudes... I keep saying, were as my color. And I told them, hey, I was like, you're from Spain, but we have the same complexion. And then we talked about the history of Spain. And they acknowledged that, you know, they're not, they're not Aryan. They don't consider themselves white. They consider themselves, it's really weird right now because they're settlers in Mexico. But even now, some of those people consider themselves to be people of color. And I don't know who agrees with that, you know, but that's what they say. That's what they're growing with. So uh, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> so, you know, we say, so we're talking, the reason I'm bringing this up is because just for, you know, so people can have this in the back of their mind when I talk about indigeneity later in the history of within Chicanismo and Mexican nationalism. All right. So after, you know, the Spanish 
I mean, during the Spanish too, there's something called uh, mestizophilia, which was the whitening of your caste. So you always want to marry into a white family, you know, something whiter than you, so you can go up in caste. After the independence of Mexico, there was another type of mestizophilia, which mestizaje, that was also trying to incorporate indigenous people, like assimilate them into the colonial society of Mexico. So mestizaje, on one aspect, is trying to make your family whiter or, you know, higher caste, higher status. And the other aspect is to assimilate indigenous peoples. At the same time, they were rejecting blackness. They were really against mixing with, you know, with black people in Mexico. They're very anti-black, this ideology. I recommend reading so people can get more deeper into this. Before Mestizaje by Ben Vincent III or Mestizo Genomics by Peter Wade. So when the Mexican Revolution happened in 1910, these new Mexican revolutionaries, intellectuals created, sort of created Mexican nationalism, you know, because they've been, you know, after they became independent, they were still bullied by the European powers. They were invaded by France. They were invaded by Spain. They were obviously invaded with the Americans, with the American-Mexican uh, War. So they were trying to create a new nationalism after the revolution. But part of this nationalism was to find out what to do with the Indian problem. They actually called it that, the Indian problem, right? And part of figuring out the Indian problem was what to do with indigenous peoples. And this led to a policy called indigenismo. So according to Lourdes Alberto from Nations, Nationalism, and Indigenas, the Indian and Chicano Revolutionary Imaginary, indigenismo is a range of governmental policies, educational reforms, land distributions, artistic movements, intellectual movements, and racial framework. So it was like, it created this binary of like, everybody is indigenous and Spanish, right? Mm -hmm. So this caused a problem. So this is like the new mestizaje. It's like everybody's indigenous and Spanish, but then it rejected blackness, which is again, anti-black. There's books about this. And it created people, indigenous peoples, to be fetishized by in a way that they were in the past because there was still this caste system where mestizos, mixed people of indigenous, supposedly indigenous and Spanish, were higher status than pure blood or pure, you know, indigenous peoples. This is the one aspect, you told me before we were recording this episode that you expected us to get some backlash for it, maybe, I guess, from people in our audience. And mm -hmm. from all the articles that you sent me and everything I read, I couldn't think of anything that would trigger some backlash. I mean, I guess just maybe because I'm so unfamiliar in reading it, but it just all seems like very similar to everything else I read about decolonization and Marxist struggle. So yeah. I didn't understand why it would be controversial, except for the article you sent me on the indigenous perspective of Frida Kahlo. And I imagine I could probably get some emails about that one. But if, if you're not there yet, no problem. But uh, that is where I think it would get spicy. Yeah, I think Jaron uh, has a question. No, no, I mean, it's, it's more of a, a commentary. But like when you see regardless of where it is in the world, when you see this caste system emerge, usually under the, the guise of some sort of nationalism, but then they start splitting hairs and means testing of like, how nationalist are you? How Spanish are you? How German are you? It's always the, when the indigenous people are on the receiving end of erasure, when that's still happening, it's always seems to be because that indigenous society tends to be at odds with perpetual growth with capitalist overproduction, yeah. with over-extortion of the land. It's, it's not even necessarily, the hatred is tied to it innately, and it feeds into the populace with this inertia that ends up becoming more and more brutal over time. 
but like it's always because they're against capitalism because they don't want just to see like, their homes destroyed and, and yeah. their their ancestral lands destroyed it's the violence is a byproduct of the economic system that's being imposed upon them yeah i agree you know that's that's what's you know it's weird i don't know why people would be against what I'm saying on this day or pro Mexican nationalism. We can talk about that later. Like, you know, the patriarch socialism conversation we're having lately with, you know, American yeah. patriarch socialists, you know, but let me finish this section up. I think, you know, this is the part that you were talking about. So one of the people that really pushed this idea, and this, it wasn't just him, it was a lot of people, um, was Jose Vasconcelos. And in his book, La Raza Cosmica, he stated his vision of a new fifth race. So he thought that all of these races that came into you know, part of Mexico, the part of the colonization of Mexico, were going to create a new master race. And he thought that the Spanish colonized indigenous peoples out of a place of love, which is really sick. You imagine yeah, like, hey, we're colonizing. Yeah. So we're colonizing you because we love you. And it's just like, no. But, you know, this dude. That um, sounds very Christian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this dude eventually because this is like 1920s, you know, but he eventually he became a supporter of the Nazis. And I read somewhere, it was a Spanish academic journal, that he was actually funded by the Nazi party for his newspaper, Timon, in Mexico. So Fuck it, why not? Yeah, so can you imagine this dude that's pushing this, this eugenics idea of a fifth race, you know, as indigenous people in the past, and everybody's a little bit indigenous, is, you know, it's a Nazi, so a eugenist. And, you know, which is weird because if you look in the book, where was that book? Um, yeah, it was Indian and Nation in Revolutionary Mexico. I think it's in that book. I still recommend that book. <laughs> but there's a picture of him and Diego Rivera together. And Diego and Frida also pushed indigenismo with the artistic uh, movement. And there's an article, it's called An Indigenous Perspective on Frida Kahlo by Joanna Garcia Charan. That article is really good. And it shows that Frida used indigenous aesthetics to push Mexican nationalism, while at the same time exploiting indigeneity, ignoring indigenous peoples, when she herself, her background of indigenous person is very, very questioned. So, you know, we have to talk about that's the roots of Mexican nationalism. You know, uh, it's, it's founded on race shifting everybody in the nation into a little bit indigenous and a little bit Spanish. And it's kind of like, once everybody's indigenous, then we don't have to talk about indigenous issues. That type of shit. When these communities are still intact and they get ignored. So this is the end of the intro. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But any questions? Can I piggyback off that? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. You can see this happening in real time, man. It's, so I'll, I'll give two really brief examples. But like, so I grew up in Western North Carolina, not far from Cherokee. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, you will see all the time these, these little white owned crystal shops that sell dream catchers. They sell little wooden flutes. They sell bows and arrows. And if you talk to the people who are there, they'll be like, well, you know, I'm 30% Cherokee or I'm 25% Cherokee. Yeah. When the, the real full blood Cherokees that are still trying to preserve their culture and their indigenous language and everything about the Cherokee have been put quite literally into the floodplains. It, it floods in Cherokee yeah. constantly. They put them in the worst plot of land they possibly could, and the rest of them relocated all the way to Oklahoma. <laughs> so, you know, we're already seeing that dilution with white people being like, yeah, I'm X amount native. That's incredibly damaging for this reason. Like, not only are you taking the economic stimulus out of those economies by sanctioning it 
and pretending that you're not fucking white, <laughs> but you're also helping erase what's left of that culture. And I see it also being raised Jewish in the tons of European Jews that look as alabaster as I do, claiming that they're from the fucking Middle East, while Palestine yeah. is being wiped off the map. It's the same playbook, not that the struggles are the same. I'm not implying that. But it's always the same playbook that like, I'm X amount this or X amount that, or, you know, a thousand years ago, my people were on this plot of land. And you have none of the culture, you have none of the systemic bias against you, because you don't have the melanin in your skin. And it's just so detached and damaging. And it seems so quaint when you're privileged and white and you get your 23andMe DNA test back and you're like, oh, looky here, I'm oppressed. I hate this test, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen that argument with like uh, Zionists, they'll say, you know, Jewish people are indigenous to, you know, Israel and saying that Palestinians are not indigenous, blah, blah, blah. So they use indigeneity as a form of colonization, which is really sick. So I think in the next section, we can talk about, well, it's first off, before I move forward, I do want to say that I recommend reading Decolonization is Not a Metaphor by Tuck and Yang. And a really big term that I want to use is the seller move to innocence, which I think Mexican nationalism is. They move to innocence by claiming indigeneity. So now we, I want to talk about, if it's okay with you, to ask you, both of you, from what you understand, what is the Chicano from what you know? Jaron, do you have anything? Because I have honestly like no idea. No, I'm here to learn on this one. The closest that I know is it is a identifying term for Latino people in the United States specifically, and I'm not sure if it was ever used pejoratively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. I thought it was actually like a derogatory term for someone from Mexico. Uh, I don't know about the derogatory. <laughs> but no, it's used in different ways. It was actually created in the 1960s. But you know, I do want to say that you know, before I start, Chicanismo is a branch of Mexican nationalism. So, from what I understand, and I've said this before, I've been asking Chicanos this for over 20 years. What's your perspective? What is what is Chicanismo? And they say three things, especially first, it's an experience. It's the children of Mexican immigrants. It's a diaspora experience. So anybody that has come from Mexico into the U.S. or, you know, their families were here prior of, you know, the Mexican-American War, you know, they're children of Mexican descent, but they're here in the U.S. So the second one is ethnicity. They're an ethnicity. And the third one, it's that it's a political ideology based on an experience. So, you know, as an indigenous person, I'm going to like critique all three. Um, the first one is an experience. So anybody that has experience consider themselves to be Chicano, right? So it can be an indigenous person from Mexico. It can be a non-indigenous person from Mexico. So that an experience can give you indigeneity, like only if you belong to a native community, right? Mm-hmm. So the second one is an ethnicity. So non-indigenous can claim to be Chicanos. And there's even infighting whether Central Americans or even South Americans can call themselves Chicanos. So there's no real solid ethnicity to what a Chicano is, right? Because like I said, there's infighting. And the political ideology based on experience, this ideology in the same time cannot give somebody indigeneity. So, you know, it can be like, I'm an indigenous Marxist and you can be like some random like white dude. 
just because he agrees with indigenous Marxism doesn't make him indigenous. You know, the ideology itself can't give somebody indigeneity unless they belong to a community. So, you know, what is Chicano? That, that itself is a discussion within Chicano themselves. I had a professor to come on my podcast. I asked, hey, you know, like this is a diaspora experience. So can a Chinese person that comes to the U.S., could they consider to be, themselves to be Chicano? And she said, yes. And I was like, that's very vague, right? It's a super vague thing to say. So when it comes to indigeneity, where does indigeneity come from? Because like I said, not all Mexicans are indigenous. Uh, to me, that's my critique on where does indigeneity come in into um, Chicanismo. Do you guys have any questions? As far as political leanings in Chicanismo, is there, are there any sort of foundational structures? Like um, it doesn't have to have a label of like left or Marxist or anything like that, but like what were some of the political pushes from that diaspora? You know, that's a good question because there's a book called Chicano Liberation and Socialism by Miguel Pendas. And in that book, he shows there was, you know, the book's from like the 70s, but he shows in this book that, yeah, 1976, he shows in the book that, you know, Chicanos were hesitant to call themselves socialists or communists. And he made a case in the book for Chicanos to be communists or, you know, to the left in order to liberate themselves. But that brings up the last topic of this is Aslan. And this has to talk about not just indigeneity, but also Marxism. So do you guys know when, have you heard of Aslan as a, a Marxist? I have in passing. Do you know anything, Mike? No, the same. I've just seen like some people like literally posting like memes and, uh, you know, other adjective prop and some logos and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, to get into the Aslan, there's a whole narrative about what Aslan is. And I have to, Get into my notes, and this is Aslan. Aslan is described as, you know, before the age of Spanish colonization, uh, there were a group of Aztecs from Mexica that traveled down to what is now known as Mexico from an unknown place called Aslan. Chicanos suggest that it's somewhere currently known as the Southwest U.S., and then the story goes that the Aztecs settled to what is now Mexico City, you know, Techno, just can't even say it, so please forgive me. You know, the Mexico <laughs> Aztec city of, of the Aztec Empire. Uh, then the Spanish came and colonized a huge amount of land from the North American continent and called it New Spain. Fast forward, post independence, Mexico. And then the, within the Mexican American War, the US obviously took the, a bunch of land from Mexico with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. These territories will later become known as Arizona, Colorado, Nevada. Utah, Texas, New Mexico, and California. So, you know, Chicanos claim that this stolen land is theirs, and now they're the new indigenous. So fast forward to 1960s, during the Chicano-Denver Youth Conference, Aslan was adopted, and especially during, quote-unquote, the book, or the pamphlet, I don't know what they want to call it, the plant spiritual, the Aslan, the spiritual plan, the Aslan. Some Chicanos like to cite Jack D. Forbes' book, Aztecas del Norte, Chicanos of Aslan, as another trustworthy source of Aslan. So I have to go one by one. You know, this is right here is what they claim Aslan to be. And they call for a free Aslan. So, you know, they call for decolonization. They want all these states to come back to a Chicano nation. It's weird because I ask Chicanos all the time, and I got two responses. First, it should go back to Mexico, and two, a separate Chicano nation. 
it's it's Chicago. Well, that's, no state. That, that's what worked out great. Those are always yeah, those are always yeah. fine. So this is where that that phrase, you know, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us comes from. Mm-hmm. So we have to talk about first the history or the oral history of these Aztecs. There's so many different places that I've heard from Chicanos say that these Aztecs come from. Some say it's from the Southwest U.S. Other people say it's from like Shoshone territory. Other people say it's from Alaska. So, you know, I don't like where these Aztecs came from. I don't really know. Right. I don't I can't really say. But what I do know is I really haven't heard uh, Native people you know, in the U.S. say they know themselves. And even the Comanche history, we come from Shoshone, so we traveled down ourselves. We were once Shoshone. And I think it's kind of like, I don't know if it's ripping from our story. I don't want to claim that either. But, you know, there are stories that different communities traveled here and traveled really far. You know, we're, we weren't just stationary with a lot of, you know, migration within the continents. Uh, there's different, very different stories within different tribal groups. But nobody, I've never heard of a, one community that says, hey, yes, we know specifically where these Aztecs came from. You know, if somebody, if somebody knows, please tell me. Second is the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, 1848. So this treaty was between two stellar nations, Mexico and the U.S. And in that treaty, it calls Mexicans settlers and the native people savages. So right there, there's a distinction of who is who. In that treaty, it promises Mexican people the rights to their property. So if they have property in the land that the U.S. gained, that property should not be infringed upon. It says on the treaty. And then it says if, if a Mexican person, you know, became a captive of Native people, of savages, you know, when the, the U.S. Army would free them, they would send them back to Mexico or wherever they were from. You know, it depends if they stayed here. So it shows you how Mexicans were treated as settlers, even though there was anti-Mexican persecutions from the white settlers, but on paper, they were treated as settlers. This is a very important aspect of what I'm saying right now. And second, there is, there's 175 U.S. federally recognized indigenous communities in these territories that were gained from the U.S. So, you know, if Aslan were to be created what would happen to these indigenous nations? Because, you know, native people in Mexico don't really have sovereignty like we do here. We have tribal governments here. We have economies, we have laws, we have courts, we have our own police stations. We have all of these programs, everything we do, you know, what would that look like? I've read a lot of Chicano literature online because this Marxist.org has a bunch of Chicano literature and I bought a lot at home, you know, and none of them talk about indigenous sovereignty. So, you know, weird. Yeah, which is odd. That's kind of like a noticeably gaping hole. That's the, that's the, we talk about that, the contradiction, right? The contradictions, the mouse contradictions. So, the spiritual plan of Aslan, you know, people would tell me that that says, you know, the Pueblos, but Pueblos does not necessarily mean indigenous Pueblos. It also means towns. Pueblos indigenas, indigenous Pueblos, means indigenous communities, but it doesn't say indigenous communities. It just says a union of free Pueblos. So right there, to me, I'm skeptical of what that word really means. And when they're writing this paper, at least they're understanding what indigenous sovereignty means. You know, at the same time, the last example is the book from Jack D. Forbes, Aztecs of Del Norte, Chicanos de Aslan. So Jack D. Forbes, they, they quote him because he, they, he claims to be a Lenape, but it's been proven 
by the Lenape that he's not a Lenape. He's just a white guy pretending to be indigenous. And he wrote, he wrote a book saying that Chicanos are Aztecs. And Chicanos used this as a source when his own claim of indigeneity was false. And then you have to think about, you know, when Mexico has been saturated with the propaganda of indigenismo, of Jose Vasconcelos, because Jose Vasconcelos gets taught in universities, in high schools to this day. Of course, somebody like Jack D. Force that wants to pretend to be indigenous would copy or just make this shit up. You know, in my point of view, that book is garbage, hot garbage. And yeah, and that's I guess it. That's where, that's where else it gets controversial is because I think it's usually in your case that I see it the most is the word pretendians, which I had never heard of until a couple months ago. And yeah, I mean, I could imagine getting some pushback on telling some people that their claim of indigenousness is not real. So I can, I can imagine we may get some emails about that. I don't know. Yeah, so I, I've asked around, I, I, especially this last year, I've asked around the Lenapes, and they know specifically that that dude was not Lenape, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really rough that so many Chicanos cite this dude. And this, they cite somebody else, I think it was a Choctaw author. But we have to think about what academics look like in the 1930s, in the 1940s, in the 1950s, right? It wasn't the same academics now. They weren't you know, indigenous studies departments back then in universities. So we have to think about like now indigenous studies, when I went to UC San Diego, was, there was no indigenous studies department. And I had to like raise hell for the department. I remember when I was in there and they told me, oh, we'll have indigenous studies department in five years. I was like, fuck that, it's not good enough. And they, they made one like, the year after they hired a chair a year after I left. So I'm happy I did that. I mean, even though I, I had burned bridges, but I think we have to, you know, as indigenous people, have a voice heard in academia to fight back against these narratives. So going back to the Marxist analysis of Chicanismo, you know, Chicanos didn't take into account, at my point of view, the indigenous sovereignty, indigenous voices, that contradiction, settler colonization, their own history in order to form an opinion. Their opinion is, you know, we're going to have a free Chicano state, which is an ethno state. And we have to think about, so if Miguel's Panda's book, if Chicanos are hesitant to be leftists, what guarantee is when they have a nation state, what guarantee is it will be a leftist nation state, especially when they're the ones that are going to be the new settlers? Let's be real. Yeah. So there's no guarantee that they are communists. You know, there are Chicano communists, there are Chicano socialists, but there's no guarantee the whole movement as a whole is communist or socialist. Like I said, there were a right-wing fascist that came out of the Mexican Revolution. And like I said, you know, the episodes before this one, not that long ago, like a week or two ago, there are these quote-unquote indigenous, heavy metal fascists that push Nazism. So these fringe ideologies happen because they don't understand indigeneity. They don't understand indigenous sovereignty. They don't understand decolonization. Well, it seems as though, especially if you don't have those defined political parameters, I mean, if you were to have a breakaway state quite literally within the imperial core, the chances of that being compromised or uh, misconstrued and just turning into a fascist ethno state does seem like something that's quite feasible if there isn't like an a economic identity behind it, especially one that already predisposes indigenous people to being on the butt end of the gun yet again. Yeah. 
So it's it, me, you know, this is what I always talk about, you know, when it comes to Chicanismo. The question I ask, what should we do with Chicano studies? Because if we are going to abolish uh, the settler state of America and Mexico and Canada and abolish settler nationalisms, because we cannot have American settler patriotic socialist, whatever that means, you know, like, like, you know, I don't want yeah. to name names. I don't know if you guys are allowed to name names. No, I mean, I, on our podcast, fucking call out, kill them all. Call out, uh, who's the other guy? Has, fuck, infrared, yeah, fuck them all, dude. Fuck all of them. Like, I say fuck vouchers as a matter of course. Oh, I hate episode. that, dude. Yeah. So I heard Lodge, I heard Haas, I heard Maupin, you know, I heard all, all of them say stuff against Landback. They say Landback is a corporate Jeff Bezos conspiracy. Yeah, you go know. fuck yourselves. <laughs> it's the weirdest. It's like the most conspiracy theory shit. I will say there's people that conspiracy theories because there are nonprofits that could be indigenous. I don't know. You know, there's no law to govern who is indigenous and make it a nonprofit or whatever, but that are exploiting Landback rhetoric. And, you know, I guess Jeff Bezos gave them uh, some donations. But, you know, these organizations don't make policies in Indian nations. The people that make policies are the tribal governments themselves. So we're the ones, the tribal governments are the ones that say, hey, you know, within our own communities, and they fight for rights for the communities themselves. So, you know, it's not these Jeff Bezos funded nonprofits, you know, whatever. That's so conspiratorial. It's so outlandish that it's like on the level of the fucking white replacement theory. Yeah. Which like... (laughs) I'll go out on the limb for the turn leftist podcast and say that white replacement theory is real and it's awesome. Go fuck yourself. I think part of decolonization, you know, is having solidarity within not just other colonized peoples, but also you can say white working class, you know, that are being exploited in capitalism. You know, the moment they see how capitalism is exploiting them and how stellar colonization is colonizing us, we can have solidarity and together we can move forward. But what does that look like? You know, people have to understand indigenous sovereignty. They have to understand what decolonization looks like. And they have to read theory. You know, they have to do all these things that work together with organize and, you know, or whatever, get together with other people and not just of your own ethnicity, but, you know, diverse and see what other people are going through, you know, and then, you know, start learning. And I have comrades of mine that say things you know, like, oh, Chicano Nation, this and that. And, you know, I, I tell them, hey, man, I'm telling you no. And I have a conversation with them, you know, and I explain to them. I try not to get mad. I think it's when, when people start defending Mexican colonization and they start defending, like, Chicano, Aslan theory. Because to me, that's a settler colonial idea. So now you're going to have this land that belongs to Chicanos. But what about the Native people there, right? Yeah, this reminds me. I listened to one of your recent episodes. And it was after we had recorded an episode with Sophia about decolonization. Mm-hmm. And you brought up so many good points that I wish we had just thought to mention. But like when you said people who are paranoid that decolonization or land back means that they would get deported or they, the, the, oh, the yeah. same thing that they did to or that generations past did to indigenous <laughs> people that would happen to them. Say that. <laughs> and it's like they're so paranoid about that. But also yeah. the fact that they are paranoid about that is just speaks so much to like their own. You know, this was almost fucked up. Yeah, they know that it's fucked up, but they're, and they're so paranoid about that. But also, the idea that the people that had that done to them would do it to other people, it's like, no one who's indigenous is saying that they want an ethnostate, except for these Aslan people that you're mentioning. But, like, that is literally so counterintuitive to the thinking of indigenous, what do you call them, like, councils and everything that are actually controlling the land, the little lands that they do still have. 
there are not just native people living there. Those are not ethno states. Like reservations are not ethno states in themselves. So why would anyone think that if you allowed them to control all of the land that is rightfully theirs, that they would suddenly make an ethno state just because you assume that that's what people do because that's what you would fucking do, you piece of shit? Like, I think you forget they're projecting. You know, it sucks because, you know, as Marxists, we should, you know, obviously there's no one size fits all Marxist style of revolution or liberation or decolonization. And I think we have to understand, it's just very simple. The historical analysis, you know, the, the conditions we're in right now, and it creates something new. We have to use our fucking imagination, right? Use your imagination. And if, you know, some people, like I said, they don't understand or they, they didn't know. And, you know, that's when they, they start, you know, listening to different communities. And I think that's why I made the podcast was so people can understand that indigenous sovereignty, we have governments and why it's so important. I think there's so many Marxists, you know, in the U.S. that has that missing piece, the missing contradiction, the missing variable within their imagination. They start saying stuff like, oh, I want to create this like USA, USSR type thing, you know, and that's wrong. I think that's where, I think a little bit where the Chicano community comes in and then they say, you know, oh, Aslan, and they don't understand that, you know, Aslan has roots. And you can't, I see people too, they say, okay, we're going to disavow Jose Vasconcelos, but they keep everything else. They keep all the Indianismo, they ignore indigenous sovereignty in Mexico, which is a whole conversation. I think there has to be conversation, how to help these communities get governments, stronger governments, you know, in positions of equal to the Mexican government, not as a paternal or like they're like asking Mexican government, you know, for like resources, whatever. It has to be equal, if not above, where the point where we abolish the Mexican government, you know, but there's so many variables, you know, within Mexico and typical people in power, sellers in powers, they never give up their power willingly. They never do it. They're not going to do it. So we have to talk about how do we have solidarities with indigenous communities in Mexico and what does it look like? Yep. So any questions? <laughs> there is... Um... So my wife and I went to the Yucatan recently, and this just kind of plays to the point of like the importance of land back and of indigenous husbandry of their original land, because this, this blew my mind. I mean, I guess I'm not fucking surprised, but when Bolsonaro took over Brazil, one of the things that he started doing was removing indigenous people from the Amazon through not just legislative means, but also through direct violent means and turning it into cow pastures. And as a result of that, the rainy season has been coming and there aren't as many trees to soak up the nitrogen. And of course, when cows shit, they create even more nitrogen. So all of this nitrogen was flowing out into the Caribbean Sea, into the Gulf of Mexico. And the result is sargassum blooms, uh, sea algae blooms that are just tremendous. They used to happen every decade, but now they happen pretty much every year and about 10 times the size they used to be. So we're on the Yucatan and these these seaweed blooms are coming up onto the beaches. And I mean, this is the entire Eastern coast of Mexico from what I have been told. And at least from what I observed on the Yucatan, it's like, you know, they have people out there scooping it up every single hour and it just never gets smaller. And here's the bonus points is it actually releases a noxious gas when it's been under the sun. So it's quite literally toxic to be out there. So the long-term effects of Bolsonaro removing indigenous sovereignty from the Amazon has affected not just Brazil, but it's affected the entire Caribbean Sea, the entire Gulf of Mexico, 
and tons of indigenous people who were on the Yucatan who were already suffering at the hands of, you know, folks who are creating like the Jicaret parks, which is like Mexican Disneyland. You know, if you want to go see a cenote, they want you to go there and see the Disneyland cenote. They don't want you to go and find like indigenous people and give them money and put it into that community yeah. to see a natural mm -hmm. one. They want to see one that's fucking drilled into the ground and removed every bit of natural wonder from it. But yeah, like it's so dystopian to see this. And I feel like a lot of people don't understand the weight of indigenous displacement. They don't understand that something that one person does in one country, and this goes back throughout all of history, has a global effect that affects everyone's well-being. Mm -hmm. Untold I agree, problems. Yeah. That's wild, you know, because um, it's like we're like a clock that's running out of time. And I think about this too, you know, talking about the ecological effect of colonization, of capitalism, and how much time do we have left? And it's like, we have so much work to do, and I think not that much time, but we're arguing about dumb shit on <laughs> So it's, it's wild, and I try to tell people, just guide them in the right way. Um, there's one thing that I missed. Uh, can I cover real quick? I mean, please. We set Is aside it? another hour, but go for it. Also, okay. mad props for getting the uh, Indigenous Studies Department implemented there, because oh, yeah, yeah, there isn't there isn't a lot of time. So, fucking props. Thank you. They, they won't give me credit, but you know, I this is a long story, and people that are there now know. <laughs> but yes, so, so I, I want to talk about a little bit an effect of Indigenismo, and it's being spread by Chicanismo, and it's a danza azteca, which is Aztec dancing, and this was created. I think in the 60s, 70s, uh, by in, this, in the book called Dancing Across Borders, Danza y Bailes Mexicanos by Ramirez Cantu and other authors. So in this book, it shows the origins of Aztec dancing, and it has a lot of roots within Dijanismo. Aztec dancing is not really indigenous, right? It's created by one person, and he made this to reconquest uh, Mexico with an indigenous movement, but it's, it's also was like, it really ignored, again, just like in the Hinismo, ignored indigenous peoples. And this person was Florencio Yescas. And to me, that's really dangerous because I remember when I lived in Texas, I saw somebody Aztec dancing and I, you know, I asked questions. I'm like, hey, why do you do this, blah, blah, blah. And this person eventually told me they weren't indigenous. They were just Mexican. They were just Chicana. And I was like, then why do you do Aztec dancing? Why do you, you know, what's the purpose of this for you? And she said her purpose in life is to assimilate everybody, Mexicans and all indigenous peoples into Aztec culture and language. And I was like, that sounds like settler colonization to me. Because yeah. Comanches, Comanches have our own language, our own culture. And there's 574 federally recognized tribes in the U.S. that have their own language, their own history, their own cultures. I was like, why the fuck do they need to, why do we need to fetishize Aztecs? And she was pushing. She was like, no, we all have to be one. We all have to be one. And I was like, this is not right. But the, you know, the dancing, dancing movement does push it. I mean, I've heard this narrative for many people within the danza community, which is really weird. I've actually heard, saw two sisters. They claim to be Puerto Pecha from Michoacan, Mexico. And I asked them, why do you do this? Why do you Aztec dance when the Puerto Pechas don't do this? And they say, well, we're not connected to our communities. And this is our version of decolonization. But that doesn't make sense either. Because I can't just go to, you know, Kumie community here in San Diego 
because I'm Comanche and say, hey, I want to learn your culture and this is how I'm decolonizing. No, I have to go back to my community. I have to learn my own ways from my family, from my community members in order to, you know, I guess like preserve the culture, preserve the language, which I am doing. And to me, this Aztec dance thing is very, uh, very aggressive, some people in it. And I think it's very dangerous movement. It's, just, it's very equivalent to, it's pushing Mexican nationalism with an indigenous mask, which is not indigenous. It just, it just has the mask, you know? Tell me it's like, so. tell me it's like Shen Yun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you hear that episode? <laughs> no, I did not, but I, I can only imagine what you have to say about Shen Yun. No, Mike's, Mike's always on one about Shen Yun, so if there's <laughs> an episode bored. about it, he's going to fucking love it. Yep. I mean, Rick, the only thing I could see somebody saying that might you know, be a point for them is to, is to say, like, obviously, people the world over would be better off if they abandoned neoliberal capitalism for indigenous ways of like lifestyle, like of dealing with the land use and resources and everything, because it would obviously be less predatory and it would not kill us as a species. But unless this person can say that by dancing, they are getting people to give up their, what do you call it, typical American lifestyle you know, live some kind of indigenous way of life or adopt that in some kind of communal level. Like, even if they, if you told me that like this person through dancing convinced a whole intentional community of people to start living like an indigenous lifestyle somewhere. And that was like a spreading movement. I'd be like, okay, I guess decolonization is working in that way. But like, unless that's happening, it just seems like it's kind of like a feel good thing. You know, it's almost like, yeah, it's like, um, washing your guilt away by, by, you know, seller move to innocence right so mm-hmm. i mean what community do you belong to and that if that dance is not part of your community why the fuck are you doing it i don't know any community that has that dance it's just odd to me i so i had a young lady when i lived in seattle tell me no so what does not tell me but you know we had we had a, a table this was so long ago <laughs> and there was a table and we it was like somebody asked how do you guys plan to decolonize he was a native person talking to this young lady that was white. And she said, it's very easy. All we got to do is copy native people's culture. And I was like, whoa, stop. <laughs> you can't do that. Yikes. Right? I was yeah, like, that's a really bad take. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's not something you can do. That's misappropriation, you know? And I think when we, you know, let's say we have a Marxist revolution, a new culture would arise, a culture away from materialism, from consumerism away from hyper-individualism, obviously a culture of community. And, you know, we have to build, I mean, like everybody, you know, indigenous, other people of color, and even white people are going to build this this culture that's going to be different. And it's not going to look indigenous, but it's going to look something that I can't tell you because I'm not there right now, right? But that's the difference, right? Like, sorry to interrupt, but like, it, it would be one thing if like a bunch of white people decided, like I was saying, to abandon the predatory against the environment lifestyle that we all have and just start living like indigenous people and adopt those parts of it. But they literally cannot do that because it would go against every piece of the fabric that this country is built on. Like yeah. the people are living in like this whole lifestyle that we are living in. So they cannot do that. So they always have to take the cultural things. They have to be fucking offensive about it and take the clothing and like the food or whatever, and like whatever they can adopt and just like, co-opt and just take that still fits in with the individualist, you know, bullshit lifestyle like you're talking about. Yeah. And that's why so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Jaren. <laughs> <laughs> but th- I think in the article, decolonization is not a metaphor. It talks about that you can't front load decolonization in your mind 
you know, you can't role play it. The only way there is decolonization is by abolishing the settler state, by abolishing capitalism, by doing these acts themselves. There's no way around that. That's the first thing is to decolonization. You cannot decolonize your mind. I mean, you can learn all you want, but you just decolonizing your mind is not, the settler state still there. You know, your own mind is not going to, like, oh, I free my mind. I'm, I'm separate now from the settler state. No, you're not. The state's still there. We have to abolish it. We have to rise up against it. Plain and simple. It's very individualistic to, for people to think, you know, I think selfish to say, hey, I decolonized my mind. And that, that's the solution. No, action has to be done. Can't just talk shit. You have to do it. So, but yeah, I mean, um, I mean, Rich, I mean, if you wanted to wrap it up there, that was like a great note to end on. Like, it really yeah. is more about, like, it's hilarious for me to say as a podcaster, but it really is more about actions than it is about talking online. So, yeah. So I recommend people, you know, listening to your podcast, listening to other podcasts, or that's, that's just a really good out there. I don't have any time my, time in my mind. Um, well, I mean, I'm going to put anything you want in the show notes. Like when I go to edit this, I'm going to write down all the books and things that you mentioned, and I will. Yeah, yeah I have like five all different windows. Yeah. And so <laughs> every single one of those will be in the show notes for everybody. You know, they will be in the episode description. So you can just look there for the links. And then anything else you want to plug, like, please plug your Instagram page. Like, yours is Decolonize Buffalo. You just have the one underscore between them, right? Yeah, Decolonize Buffalo. Just look up Decolonize Buffalo. Uh, let me see. Decolonize underscore Buffalo. And Twitter is Decolonize BP. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then I have a Facebook. Uh, Facebook's really, like, barely gets uh, anything on, you know. Yeah, I don't even bother with it. <laughs> <laughs> <Fuck> Facebook. <laughs> Fuck Zuckerberg. <laughs> I mean, it's not like we're not on his product anyway, being on Instagram, but whatever. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah. So, you can, like I said, it's an accumulation of capital. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, if people, I think if people have questions, they can send a message to me or to you. Maybe we can have a part two of this. Absolutely. Uh, I, I don't mind. Went back a bunch of times. Yeah. So, I yeah, appreciate please. it. Uh, yeah, and, you know, people are listening, just uh, don't get so angry. Just read. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> Look it up yourself. Thank you. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Rick. I appreciate it. And, thank Darren, you. thank you for coming on, man. It was fun. Yeah, dude. I, I miss you guys. Uh, I'm going to try and come on a little more often here. Yeah. Rick, was there anything else that you wanted to plug or anything else you want to tell our listeners before we go? No. I just I hope that we, in order, so the, the only thing is we, in order to uh, really have a concrete analysis of decolonization, we have to understand the colonized peoples, the history of this land. Without understanding or knowing the history, we're going to have a really shoddy understanding. I think this word, Chicanismo, Chicano studies, is really empty. And I have had Chicano professors tell me they understand and they know and they agree, but it's hard to say this publicly because Chicano departments are an economic machine. So they are fighting against their own departments. <laughs> to you know put the stuff out so yeah. just all you gotta do is stand up for yourself there's there are people that are standing up for it there's a i had an episode with the mecha chapter that stood up against the word mecha because that's Oslon in it mm-hmm. and you know they understand the criticisms and they are very smart people there's a lot of chicanos that are in solidarity with indigenous peoples and this is not to demonize any chicanos themselves is to just unpack the history of settler colonization within Mexican nationalism, Chicano nationalism, and indigenismo, mestizaje, and the possible atrocities that might come in the future within their academia or, you know, any type of movement. So we have to be really careful. So thank you. Thank you, Rick. I mean, this is great. This is super interesting. And 
yeah, I was really glad we had John. I can't wait to have you back on again to talk about any other topic related to this that you would like to do. So everybody, okay. please subscribe to Decolonize Buffalo podcast and follow Decolonize underscore Buffalo on Instagram. I mean, your memes are like fucking great. I, I like them just as much as anybody else's page. So. Thank you. I just followed. It's great, man. <laughs> Thank you. All right, cool. All right. Thanks again, Rick. I'll see you guys later.